Second Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse five, Peter writes, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure For if you do these things, you will never stumble for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second epistle of Peter calls on the believer to fight against false teaching and spiritual deception. And the most effective weapon to battle lies is the truth. And the source of truth is the word of God and the word made flesh. Peter begins the chapter by talking about the gift of knowledge in verses one through four. And then he is going to emphasize our growth in knowledge in verses five through eleven. Later, Peter will describe the ground of knowledge in verses 12 through 21 or our ability to determine whether or not the message of the gospel is, in fact, true. We discover something right off the bat for those who have come into a right relationship with God in Christ. Spiritual growth is an essential part of the believer's life. As a matter of fact, every mother and every father who has ever given birth to a child realizes that there is a normal process of growth that takes place in the life of maturation. Growth is expectation of maturation. And so with the new birth in John chapter three, verse five, there is this sense, this expectation. We begin our journey of faith by trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. We continue the journey on the path that's marked diligence by adding to our faith virtue and then adding to virtue knowledge. As a matter of fact, much of the Christian life is math, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. We add virtue, we subtract vice, we multiply love, we divide sorrow. Peter knows real spiritual growth doesn't consist in religious cliches or vague generalities. Real spiritual growth has to include concrete realities in the very real world in which we live. The path of diligence is marked by certain personal characteristics. And so in this chapter, Peter is going to remind us of the secret of the beginning of a personal walk with Jesus, faith, continuing that walk and then concluding that walk in verses 10 through 11. 
So we begin at the beginning. We honor God in our lives. Look again at verse five, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. When Peter writes, but also for this very reason, what reason do you suppose he's making reference to? It's all that he's written in verses one through four. Remember what he's already discussed, what God has done for you. In the first four verses, Peter remind us, reminds us that the saints have the knowledge of their salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God has provided a mechanism for the freedom of from guilt, salvation, reconciliation with the father. Peter reminds the saints of the knowledge of their salvation. Jesus for faith and righteousness, verse one, grace and peace, verse two, real life and true godliness, verse three, everything that pertains to life and godliness, the divine nature or a new man with new appetite, new association, new environment in verse four. Now, Peter will spell out some of the things that we can do. In the first four verses, he says, this is what God has done for you in Christ. Beginning in verse five, Peter reminds the, the reader, this is what you can do. Jesus Christ, because of his love and because of his grace and because of his mercy, we can add to that supernatural faith these things. Verses five through seven. Peter will comment on the great power of these things in verses 8 through 11, and then the great importance of these things in verses 12 through 15. So in verse 5, he says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence. The word is spode. It means to make every effort. Or to begin to immediately make every effort. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Paul uses this term in the business sense. In other words, to make haste or to do something quickly. It meant to do something with great care, with great zeal, in a forward fashion. The sense is a moral imperative. It means to move quickly. It means a mission that requires the reader to drop everything and to do this. So when it says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, the idea is that now you're going to gather together your energy and your resources to make it happen. This is what you would. This is what a coach would say to a world class athlete. We are now going to enter into a process of discipline and devotion, taking all of our energy and personal effort as we approach the personal prize that we want to embrace. And this should cause each and every one of you to underline this point and to say spiritual growth requires an all out effort on your part. Spiritual growth requires an all out effort on your part. And by the way, if you're opening up your Bible and you're looking at the text and you go, you know what? An all out effort. I'm not prepared to give an all out effort. Guess what? You'll stunt your growth. 
If you begin the growth process with the idea, I don't want to grow. I don't want to learn. I am going to do all of those things that retard and developmentally disable the growth process then you're already making a huge mistake. Spiritual growth requires an all-out effort. And by the way, when you look at this one sentence, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, all-out effort, add to your faith virtue. That word add is a very small word in the English language, but it's a very big word in the Greek language. As a matter of fact, that little tiny word is epikorygon. Epi is the prefix, Corrigan is the suffix. Corregos was a word that was used in the ancient world of plays and entertainment. As a matter of fact, wealthy patrons would finance lavish public, public spectacles, public games, uh, public performances. In modern terms, when you see a movie... You'll note that the movie has actors and directors and set designers. Sometimes at the beginning of a, of a movie, you'll see produced by. It's the same word, Corregos. The producer is the person who foots the money in order to make the spectacle happen. So producers are the money behind the project. In the ancient world, Corregos... These are producers would try to outdo one another in their extravagant production. So Peter is going to combine two words. The first great effort, spode. The other means great cost, corrigos. So when he is in effect saying personal growth requires great effort and great cost. For those of you who ever saw the movie about the dinosaur guy um, where, you, you know, they, they have this dinosaur land and one of the, the actors goes, we spared no expense. You Jurassic Park. Thank you. In Jurassic Park, the guy who put the park together goes, we spared no expense. Peter is basically making the point spiritual growth requires great effort where you spare no expense. So what is Peter proposing? There's no labor too great. There's no price too great in pursuing the God-honoring life. Now, what's interesting is people in the world will applaud you when you pursue your passion for life. When you pursue your passion for whatever it is that, that you adore or embrace or enjoy, whether it's entertainment or hobbies, they'll look in awe with the resources that you've managed to accumulate in order to indulge your passion. But if you take those same resources and that same a passion and apply it to a God-honoring life, they'll call you foolish or fanatic or freak. Even your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, someone will say to you, you know, you're, you're overboard here. You're out of control. You're going to church on Sunday. You're going to church on Wednesday. You're going to church throughout the week. You're hosting a Bible study in your house. You're, you've become a freak. Now, don't get me wrong. Going to church on Sunday, going to church on Wednesday, I thank God that you come to church and I thank God that you show up. But guess what? It's not showing up that ensures growth. 
that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the change of mind and the change of heart and the change of affection and the change of sensibilities. Sometimes the God honoring life is a little overwhelming. We begin to understand God's demands and God's expectations and we sense we feel a sense of failure and we we feel a sense of frustration. But remember, remember, your salvation, your faith is supernatural. Your faith is in the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the Lord God through Christ and the Holy Spirit who are at work in the life of every believer. It is God who has saved you. It is God who has promised victory over sin. It is God who has called us to spiritual maturity. And you must understand something. The most frustrating thing that could ever happen in a person's life is to want to honor God, but you've never actually entered into a right relationship with God through Christ. The God honoring life is impossible without a God honoring faith. And a God honoring faith is impossible Unless you come to a place in your life where you really, truly know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. It's God who will help us to cultivate those God-honoring virtues of a Christ-honoring life. It is the Lord God himself who gives us strength and blessings as we purpose in our heart to bring them to a place of daily discipleship and personal practice. So think about this for a moment. The God-honoring life begins with a God-honoring faith in the Lord Jesus. The God-honoring life continues with God-honoring virtue. So he says... But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And by the way, virtue in the ancient world was the quality of moral excellence. It was the goodness of character, moral strength, moral courage. In the ancient world, something could be called excellent or morally excellent or virtuous if it fulfilled its reason to exist or its function. Let me give you an example. In the ancient world of the Greeks, they loved horses and a horse that was beautiful and a horse that was strong and a horse that was fast could be called virtuous. A land could be called virtuous if you could plant it and cultivate it and it would produce fruit. In other words, a virtuous land was a land that was an abundant land, a fruitful land. And so that's the idea. Virtue is that quality that allows a person to act with courage and strength in the midst of adversity. Let me help you. Sometimes the best way to define a word is by using its opposite. The opposite of virtue is vice. Now, you know what the word vice means. In police departments all across the country, they don't have a virtue department. They have a vice squad. And the vice squad investigates wickedness. But remember, it's the kind of wickedness that, that, that causes people to take filthy pictures of your children. It's the kind of people who take appetites and they use it to fulfill lusts. That's the idea. So virtue and vice are polar opposites. The Roman philosopher Seneca wrote 
to be better than the worst is not goodness. We live in a culture and a society where we begin to define ourselves, not in terms of the best person we know, but in terms of the worst person we know. Well, at least I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, I don't cut people's heads off and put it in the refrigerator. You know, we never compare ourselves to Mother Teresa, do we? You know, compared to Mother Teresa, I'm pretty miserable. But that's the point. Virtue is the word that's used to express the reason why you exist. And why do you exist? To honor God. To love Him. To know Him. You were created to enter into friendship and fellowship with Him. Thomas Fuller said, Virtue dwells not in the tongue, but in the heart. Moral excellence is Who you are when no one else is looking, when no one is there to observe your behavior. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, how you ought to walk and please God so that you will abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And that you should abstain from fornication. First Thessalonians four verses one through three, or that you should grow in grace and that you should abstain from those things that retard grace. Now, think about this. God honoring faith precedes virtue. And virtue precedes knowledge. So when he says add to your faith, the virtue, and to virtue knowledge, he's using the expression no sin. It's practical intelligence. It's practical wisdom. It's practical insight. We might even use the term common sense. This means knowing what to do in every situation and then having the courage to do what's right in every situation. This is not theological Brain power. This is not philosophical acuity. This is not epistemological understanding. This is not being Mr. Genius. This means you have the kind of knowledge that sees the trial, sees the test, sees the temptation. You negotiate a way through the trial, through the test, through the temptation that's God honoring. In other words, you don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed, but you know the difference between right and wrong. And you go, this is right and this is wrong. And that's what he's talking about. A God honoring faith that leads to a God honoring moral excellence that informs the mind and informs the heart. And by the way, what do you suppose provides the solid ground That makes good choices grounded in faith possible. It's the knowledge of the Bible. It's opening up your Bible. It's reading in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's searching the passages. In other words, doesn't it make sense to you? Doesn't it make sense to you that every believer should be involved in a Bible study? And I'm not talking about just coming to church on Sunday. 
I'm talking about a personal commitment on the part of the believer to open up their Bible so that they can see what is going on. One of the reasons why so many people stumble and fall is they neglect personal Bible study. What about the person who says, well, I don't know how to act in any given situation. A God honoring faith. And a God honoring virtue will produce a God honoring knowledge where you know what's right and you know what's wrong. You know in your heart that if Jesus is present and Jesus is watching you and you're watching it and you're listening to it, you know the difference. And so in verse six, look what Peter writes to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness. Now, think about it for just a moment. God honoring faith. God-honoring virtue, God-honoring knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. The God-honoring life uses God-honoring knowledge to inform the mind and to inform the will. By the way, the word self-control translates the Greek verb egg, which is the suffix, and kriteia. It's only here in Acts 24-25 in Galatians 5-23. The word used to be translated in the old King James temperance. Some of you might be familiar with that word. At least a couple of you are old enough to remember the word temperance. Temperance was often word used to describe the way that you exercise self-control when you're dealing with addictive substances. So at the turn of the century, when they had the temperance movement, it was associated with alcohol. So the temperance movement actually meant a willingness or the ability, the ability to say no to alcohol. And so I think it was Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything except temptation. We laugh because that seems to be the human way of dealing with passion and lust and desire. But what Peter writes is that we are to master our passion and our lust and our desire. We're to exercise self-control. We're to harness sensual lusts and cravings. And by the way, that word means to be strong, to be controlled, to be restrained. Here it means to stand against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. Even the ancient Greek philosophers knew the problem of passion and what it meant to be out of control. Epictetus said, no man is free who is not a master of himself. John Climacus wrote, control your appetite before your appetites control you. Even a dog can be taught to restrain himself or herself from the bowl. Many of you have done it. You've taken a dog and you've seen the dog train and you put the food in the bowl and you tell the, go- the dog, no. And guess what? Can a dog be instructed to refrain from eating the food until you say, okay? 
Answer is yes. Now, I need you to think this through. If a dog can be taught to restrain its passion and desire, can you? I know what some of you have said, and you've even said it to each other. I just can't control myself, especially when it's green chili. I can't control myself, especially when it's dark chocolate with pistachios inside. But here's what he's saying. A God honoring faith. Which. Adds to a God honoring virtue and a God honoring knowledge leads to a God honoring self-control. As a matter of fact, a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit can embrace and manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And that includes a life of control. Paul writes in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know this passage. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no Law or prohibition. In other words, are you going to get in trouble for loving, for joy, for peace, for long suffering? The answer is no. Paul himself, in preaching to the Roman governor, Felix, in Acts chapter 24, gives his testimony. And as he gives his testimony, he talks about his life before Christ, how he was a persecutor of Christians and a hater of Christians. He talked about meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. He talked about being struck blind and having his sight returned to him. And it says in verse 25, and he reasoned of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come and it says and Felix trembled and answered go your way for this time when when I have a convenient season I'll call for you in other words shut up Paul don't call me I'll call you the reason that when he began to talk about righteousness and self-control and judgment he began to upset his sensibilities just like Peter's message will upset some of our sensibilities, especially if we've chosen to live a life distant from our faith, detached from virtue, blinding and distancing ourselves from the knowledge of God. In first Corinthians, chapter seven, verse nine. Paul wrote that the believer is called upon to exercise self-control in regards to the way you think and the way you act. And particularly in regards to sexual desires, the believer is called upon to exercise control of every area of life. Like the athlete who disciplines himself or herself in a body comp- or in a, in, a, in a competition in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, it says, every man that strives for the mastery is temperate. That means self-control. Discipline. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we, an incorruptible, we are surrounded by people who make sacrifices and limit things in their life to pursue what they want to pursue. Paul's argument is if they can do it for something temporary, 
Why can't we do it for something eternal? And Hugo Grotius writes, a man cannot govern a nation if he can't govern a city. He cannot govern a city if he can't govern a family. He can't govern a family unless he can govern himself. And he can't govern himself unless his passions are subject to reason. Even the person in the world knows that a passion can be subjected to reason and both Peter and Paul are asking you to submit yourselves to something even more powerful to, than reason and that's faith and that's God honoring faith that's what he's saying Sir Edmund Hillary, who, of course, is famous for being one of two men who first climbed Mount Everest, he wrote, quote, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. That's the obstacle in the Christian community. Our ranks are swelling with people who are addicted to alcohol, who are addicted to drugs, who are addicted to immoral practices. We divorce our husbands and husbands abandon their wives. How is this possible? How is this happening? In times past, Christians through faith in Christ, reading God's word, filled with God's spirit, submitting to God's power and the Holy Spirit were were able to overcome and conquer destructive habits. Self-discipline should mark the life of the believer. But remember what I said to you. That these aren't pearls on a string. But rather, these are telescoping images that Peter is giving because he says, guess what? A God-honoring faith will lead to a God-honoring moral excellence, which will lead to God-honoring knowledge, which will lead to God-honoring self-control. I can't control myself. Tell me about your faith. Tell me about your character. Tell me about your understanding. Because with faith, with virtue, with knowledge, you provide all of the foundation that's necessary for you to say, I am going to honor God. Remember what I told you? That virtue means you do what you were designed to do. This may come as a shock and a surprise to you. But you weren't designed to sin and you weren't designed to live in rebellion against God. You were designed to know him and to love him and to serve him. And when you're overwhelmed, it's OK for you to say, this isn't who I am. This is what I, this is not who I was called to be. And so when he says to knowledge and self-control, add perseverance that word is an interesting word it means steadfastness or stick to itness someone once said it was perseverance that allowed the snail to go into the ark of noah just a little bit at a time. It's steadfastness. The word carries with it the idea of positive, hopeful attitude. Again, this is the exact opposite of a negative or unhopeful attitude. In other words, the God honoring perseverance is the person who said is not the person who says, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't control myself. 
And the Bible says, no, you can. For the person who thinks in terms of constant defeat, for the person who thinks in terms of constant failure, for the person who thinks in terms of constant bitterness, constant trial, constant sorrow. There are times when you don't see God's plan and you don't see God's purpose and you don't see God's will. Here's what it says. The Christian is given every right to be steadfast and joyous and confident, not in their own ability, but in the ability of God to see them through. Our confidence is in Christ. Our confidence is in the Lord God who has given us Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Our confidence is that we can count adversity and obstacle as an opportunity to see God work. This is the kind of perseverance that grabs despair by the, the, by the throat and begins to choke it until it can't breathe. Early on, my father taught me. If your enemy can't breathe, he can't hurt you. My father said, if he can't see, he can't hurt you. And my father said, your goal is never to win the fight. Your goal is to so disable your opponent, to so hurt your opponent that they'll never, ever want to touch you ever again. You don't even have to win the fight. If they're choking and blind, they're just going to pretty much let you go by the wayside. They're going to pick on somebody who isn't going to go quietly into the night. Perseverance is exactly that. You choke out despair. You cripple sorrow. You obligate and then invigorate hope. And you hope that a good God and a powerful God and a, and a gracious God is going to see you through the difficulty. That's God-honoring perseverance. And the God-honoring perseverance leads to godliness. Now, that word godliness in our language might be misleading because you might look at the word godliness and think about your ability to, to act like God. But oddly enough, that's not the meaning of the word. We receive life and godliness by Jesus. We experience life and godliness because we know and love and surrender to God. But godliness comes when we are willing to walk with the Lord, surrender to the Lord, experiencing the life of God as we walk day by day. The word itself really is filled with with the the sentiment of reverence towards God. In other words, it isn't you being perfect. But it's you being reverent towards God. And when I use the term reverent towards God, it means that the things of God, you are sensitive and sensible. 
that you actually think that the church is the bride of Christ, that the Bible is the word of God and that the promises that are contained in the word of God, you begin to ask and answer the question, not filled with doubt and disappointment, but you begin to realize something that there is a real God who has really revealed himself. And you know that he is a holy God and a righteous God. And you are reverent in your conduct to God. You don't abuse God and you don't misuse your relationship. Relationship. That's what it's talking about. As a matter of fact, if I were to use another term to describe it, it's primarily not just an attitude of reverence about God, but it's also a respect for and a concern for everybody else. You want to know why? Because you believe that the Bible is true. And because you believe that the Bible is true, you believe that each and every person is made in the image of God. So the moment you look at a person... And you look at them and you see their circumstances, no matter how wicked, no matter how good, no matter how right, no matter how wrong. The first thought that enters your mind is you go, that person was made by God. That person was created by God. That person's going to live forever somewhere. And because they're going to live somewhere, they're going to live in heaven or they're going to live in hell. What I say or what I do might influence the direction that they're going. When you see another human being, you're immediately drawn to the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for their life. You become keenly aware of their feelings. And because you are keenly aware and sensitive to their destiny and to their feelings, you do the best you can to honor the Lord in the relationship that God has called you to. Do you understand that God-honoring knowledge leads to God-honoring self-control, which leads to God-honoring perseverance, which leads to a God-honoring respect towards God and towards others. And so in verse 7, he says, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Brotherly kindness is a word that you're going to be very familiar with. Philadelphian. It's the special love that exists between brothers and sisters within a loving family. This is the kind of affection that's represented in family loyalty, deep affection, nurture, concern. It's two Greek words, philos, which is affection, and adelphos. Whenever I hear that word, you know what I think of? Twins. Because adelphos is the Greek word which means to share the same womb. Now, remember, if you share the same womb, that makes whoever comes out of that womb your brother, your sister. Maybe when you became a Christian, somebody said to you, hey, brother, and you go, weirdo. I'm not your brother. I'm not your sister. I don't remember seeing you at the Thanksgiving meal. It's not weird at all. He's speaking of a spiritual thing. We share a common womb. We are both birthed by the same birth, the common Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given you new life through Jesus Christ. We share a common spirit. We share a common Lord. We share a common destiny. And so 
here, Peter is using the term spiritually to mean people who share the same savior, the same spirit, the same destiny. So the God honoring life is a is a life that's marked by brotherly kindness. Now, you need to understand something. We don't simply promote the welfare of believers. We don't simply bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. If that were all we did, it would be enough. But there's way more to this. It means we refrain from gossip. We refrain from prejudiced statements. We refrain from division and harsh criticism that is unjust and unfair and unkind. We avoid unjust judgments. We avoid hypocritical judgments. We stand for Christians. The way older brothers rush to the aid of a younger brother when the younger brother is attacked by bullies. Again, I go back to my life. Another thing my father taught me. If someone hurts your brother. He's hurting everyone in your family. If someone hurts your sister. He's hurting everyone in your family. So I had a sacred charge early on. If someone threatens or intimidates anyone in my family, you remove the threat. I think I told you the story of Billy Graham, one of the great evangelists of all time. A stalker started stalking his family and he came up to the front door and Billy Graham punched him right in the nose and knocked him flat. And he goes, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But if you ever threaten anyone in my family, I'll kill you. Have a nice day. (laughs) There's a sense of loyalty. And there's a sense of honor. And there's a sense of safety. But this is a God-honoring kindness that you extend to your family. And note what he ends. It is marked by... Brotherly kindness, which leads to love and love, of course, is the strongest word used here in their language. It's agape. It's the kind of love that considers the thing that's loved apart from its value or worth. In other words, this is the kind of love that lavishes affection and consideration with no thought to the worthiness of the thing loved. In other words, this is the kind of God honoring love. If I were to put it in simple terms, it's the possibility of loving others the way that God loves us. You have to understand something. The Lord God was moved with compassion. And provided a way of redemption. When we were sinners, estranged from God, hating God, rebelling against God. In other words, this is the kind of love that in the midst of a virile hatred, an obstinate hatred, Jesus Christ comes and he loves you and he dies for you. He does it quite apart from your willingness or unwillingness to cooperate. And so the Bible says here in his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. In other words, this is the kind of love that takes into consideration. No worth, no value. The person doesn't have to have any connection to you 
whatsoever. By the way, the expression love one another appears 12 times in the Greek New Testament. And so the God honoring life is marked by love. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. The eight characteristics for growth, for a God honoring growth, God honoring faith, God honoring virtue, God honoring knowledge, God honoring self-control, God honoring patience, God honoring perseverance or actually godliness, brotherly kindness and love. Now, when we come to verse eight, it becomes important that you remember all of those things because he says, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The key word is abound. It's the word pleo, nazonta, pleo, nazonta. It means to increase and grow and overflow. It was the it was the word that was used by the Greeks to to, to describe the Nile when it flushed its banks. It means to be filled over and over and over and over again. The idea is if we possess and practice these eight characteristics of a God honoring life, we're going to reflect the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. We will love God. We'll love his word. We'll study it. We'll have unfailing self-control. We'll be victorious. In times of trial, we'll manifest a continual reverence towards God and respect for our brothers and sisters. We'll be selfless instead of selfish. We'll bless people instead of harm them. And the word translated barren is the Greek adjective argos, a which is negative, and the the, the uh, argos, which means idle, lazy, barren. It's translated useless. It's translated ineffective. And so the the idea is you won't be useless and you won't be ineffective. You won't be barren. And why is this important to you? Because if ever you felt empty, if ever you felt lonely, if ever you felt barren and detached, like like some clinging plant in the middle of a barren desert, And he writes the word unfruitful, a carpos, again, the alpha privative and carpos fruit, meaning no fruit, barren and no fruit. Why is this important? You should ask yourself this question. How would I characterize my spiritual walk and growth? Is your life everything that it should be and could be? Are you pleased with your spiritual growth? Are you satisfied simply to know Jesus, escape hell and manage to keep one foot in the world and one foot in heaven? Are you thinking, look, I just want to go to church. I want to do my obligation and my duty and I want to get on with it. Here's what Peter writes. Now, you have to understand something. When Peter is done writing this book, he marches to a Roman cross. He is going to be held upside down and he is going to be killed. These are final words. These are parting words about your faith and your growth in faith. So in verse nine, he says, for he who lacks these things is short sighted, even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sin. By the way, my optometrist friends will know that Greek word. 
myopism, the present participle, myopato, only here, myops, myopia. Do you guys know what myopia is? Nearsightedness. Here in the original language, it means close your eyes. Now, when you're a child, a child will think, if I close my eyes, everybody's gone. Everybody's disappeared. And then you open it. There you are. Can you tell I've been playing with my grandchild? There you are. That's the idea. When Peter says, for he who lacks, not who doesn't possess these things, or has never possessed these things, he's talking about a deficiency. You know what he's doing? He's saying that a person who is deficient in these areas are closing their eyes in the hopes that no one will notice. Maybe no one will notice that I don't have a God-honoring faith. Maybe no one will notice that I don't have a God-honoring virtue. Maybe no one will notice that I don't have a God-honoring knowledge. Maybe no one will notice I don't have a God-honoring self-control. Maybe no one will notice that I don't have a God-honoring perseverance. Maybe no one will notice that I don't have God-honoring godliness. But God does notice. It's, it's a game that you play. I call this Mr. Magoo Syndrome. Mr. Magoo Syndrome. Do you remember growing up with Mr. Magoo? Ha <laughs> ha! Magoo, you've done it again. Mr. Magoo was profoundly nearsighted. But here's what Mr. Magoo did. He lived his life as if everything he could see clearly. He didn't let a thing like blindness keep him from participating in the real world and wreaking havoc and barely escaping. That's the way some Christians are. I'll just pretend that no one notices my immaturity. But Peter is basically saying, look, it's worse than just simply keeping your eyes shut, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his old sins. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that the person who is deficient in virtue, in knowledge, in self-control, in perseverance. He's not talking about empty or absent. He's just simply talking about deficient and that the person who is in fact deficient is blind and is forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Think about this. The person who neglects these things will eventually neglect the cross of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. The person who forgets these things will forget how profound his or her sin is and will forget the grace of God and God's love and God's mercy. The person who forgets the enormity of sin will forget the enormity of God's love and God's grace. And that person becomes a backslider. So why would I say that? Because the truth is, each and every one of us is either moving forward or moving backwards. And the person who thinks little of sin and the person who thinks little of the consequences of sin and the person who thinks little of the actions of sin will forget the gospel. And so here's what Peter is saying. If you'll remember these things. It has this amazing power. And the amazing power is to keep you close to Jesus. 
And the deficiency is in direct proportion to the deficiency. You'll push away from Jesus. These things have the power to keep us near or to keep us far away. He says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Now, look at that word. Sure. Bebios. It means firm. It means secure. It was a word that was used to describe something that was binding. It was legally guaranteed by way of security. In our culture and society, we have a thing called a cosigner. If a person purchases a car and they says, your credit's no good, you're going to need a cosigner. When the cosigner co-signs for the loan, does the co-signer obligate himself or herself for all of the loan? The answer is yes. If for whatever reason the person doesn't make good, that person obligates themselves for the entire amount. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election secure, firm. Sure, what is your call? God called you into a right relationship with God through Christ. Election, you've been selected. The way I put it is this way. When I was in a younger, much younger man, I ran for student government. In order to become the president of my school, someone had to nominate me. Someone had to second the motion. And then they had to vote me into the office. The father says, I nominate you. The, the son says, I second the motion. The Holy Spirit says, all in favor, say aye. And you're in. Abide in Jesus. Be diligent. That means we give ourselves in our energy. Remember, we make every effort. We spare no expense. And he says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. Question. Do you ever stumble? Do you ever stumble in your marriage? Do you ever stumble in your family life? Do you ever stumble in your relationships? Do you ever stumble at work? Do you stumble in school? Do you stumble in life? Do you stumble in the promises that you make and break? Do you stumble in planning and behavior in resolutions in the Christian life and devotion and witness and serving Jesus in worship? Do you stumble? If the answer is yes, then guess what? Add to your God honoring faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge and keep adding to it and keep adding to it and keep adding to it and keep adding to it. Keep adding to these things and there will come a point where you add to them and you refuse to subtract from them. And guess what? You stumble less, a lot less. And look at verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at that word abundantly. It means rich. It means extravagant. For so an entrance will be supplied to you extravagantly, richly, abundantly. The reason why this becomes so important is because some of us think that we're going to have to sneak into heaven. Can you imagine when you die and you tell the angels, look, just forget about the front door, okay? Let's just sneak in the back so nobody can see. 
See, I know what some of you are thinking. You smell sulfur and the odor of hell. You feel the heat on your backside. You you wonder if if you barely missed hell and you barely miss heaven. You might even pray, oh, God, I just just if I just make it, I'm okay with that, Lord. I just don't want to go to hell, okay? But you know what Peter's writing? For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You were never, you, you were never supposed to be snuck into heaven. The doors are going to open wide. And the angels are going to sing. And the crowds are going to rejoice. And you are going to be welcomed into your eternal reward. You were meant to inherit the kingdom with all of its wealth and all of its riches and all of its glory and all of its service. Because you have a God honoring faith. And a God honoring virtue. And a God-honoring knowledge and a God-honoring self-control and a God-honoring perseverance and a God-honoring godliness and a God-honoring brotherly kindness, and which leads to a God-honoring kind of love. Have you noticed in that list that it said nothing about where you go to church and it said nothing about what you do? It doesn't talk about how many kingdoms you've established or how many people you've led to the Lord. It's talking about the transformation of growth that comes from a person who has a God-honoring faith that leads to a God-honoring growth. That's what opens wide the doors of heaven. That's what causes the angels to sing. A God-honoring growth. And a God-honoring consequence. Heaven. I've got to stop. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that for the person who turns their back on faith and turns their back on virtue and turns their back on knowledge and turns their back on self-control. That they say, this is not what I'm willing, ready, prepared Able to do. Lord, I pray that they would see the futility. The blindness. Of what they're doing. Lord, we pray that as men and women of God, we would. Make every effort. We would spare no expense. To become the kind of men and women that you want us to be. So that we can grow. So that we can fulfill the purpose that we were created for. To know you and to love you and to serve you. Lord, we know that we've been given everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of our Savior. And so again, Lord, we commit that to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.